And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals who seek the best education and inspiration on how to grow a business. HubSpot Podcast Network hosts act as on-demand mentors to entrepreneurs, startups, and scale-ups through practical tips and inspirational stories. Listen, learn, and grow with the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. My guest today is... Is Carol Roth. Carol is the author of The War on Small Business. Make sure you go follow her on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. Carol is a recovering quote-unquote investment banker, TV pundit, and host, and New York Times best-selling author of her first book as well, Entrepreneur Equation. She's worked in a variety of capacities across various industries, including currently as an outsourced CCO and as a director on public and private company boards. She is also a strategic advisor to various companies and she advocates for small business, small government, and quote-unquote big hair. Carol has spent more than a dozen years in front of the camera. She's developed more than 1,000 pieces of content across a variety of media. She is regularly featured on national cable televisions, including Fox Business, CNBC, CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Economics from Wharton School of Business in Pennsylvania, where she graduated magnum cum laude. Today, we're going to speak about her new book and some of the lessons and insights that she pulls out of it, The War on Small Business. We're going to speak about the plight of the small business owner and the fact that they went to hell and back over the last year and a half. We're going to speak about how COVID, as well as some government mandate, crippled some of the most important people, small business owners in society, and how they can recover and what we have to do to help them recover. Because as we know, for the past year and a half, small businesses have been hit hard. So we're going to walk through some lessons and some insights that she has, and then we'll also try and figure out how best to help these small businesses going forward. The goal and the quest that Carol really is on is to help rebuild the businesses that make the backbone of America. So let's jump right into it. This is Carol Roth, author of The War on Small Business. Yes, so um, I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. My dad was an electrician. My mom was a stay-at-home mom turned uh, hobby entrepreneur, I guess you would call it. And uh, I managed to get myself into Wharton undergrad. And my father, who is extremely um, commonsensical and, and financially savvy, said, that's great. Uh, how are you going to pay for it? And we went through this whole ROI calculation of, well, if I, if I go there, I can probably get a pretty decent job and pay it down. And so 
um, when I was there, that was that was the mantra. And so usually people who go to Wharton have two paths if you're looking to pay down debt really quickly. One is management consulting for people who like to do a deep dive. And for people who have ADD, we go into investment banking. So obviously I was gonna take the investment banking route and that's where I started my career. As you noted, I am a recovering investment banker. It's a 12-step program. I'm somewhere around step 11. Uh, but did you know billions of dollars worth of transactions over my time, raised capital, did mergers and acquisitions and the like, and still you know remain as a market uh, commentator and fascinated just by the concepts um, of markets um, to this day. So that's kind of how all of this insanity kicked off. And uh, the nice thing about uh, going into a place that uh, buys you financial flexibility is that flexibility piece. So it kind of mm -hmm. gives you latitude to um, think about things you might want to do. And although I have not achieved my dream yet of being a game show host, which is my ultimate <laughs> uh, goal, that in the interim, uh, I have been, a, as you mentioned, a reality competition judge and uh, host of shows, panelist on shows frequently in media, sit on boards of directors, do some investing, act as an outsourced chief customer officer for a collectibles company and do all kinds of fun things along the way and uh, write books. When, um, when you left investment banking, when did you decide that you wanted to build a name for yourself, write a book, start to put yourself out there because that's not a easy thing to do either, but you're doing it, you're doing it big. And now this is sort of what's giving you the platform to, to write. Well, well, so I, you know, I was the big mouth in investment banking that would be like, are you guys crazy? And like the middle of a meeting and people are like, Oh, you can't say that. And I'm like, Oh, well, I'm going to say it anyway. So I, you know, I had that personality and people would say to me all the time, like you should be on television. And I'm like, okay, like, what the heck does that mean? And so like, after I left banking and, and actually started my own broker dealer, um, it was, you know, one of the things I decided I was going to try doing and I wasn't exactly sure how one did that because this was again a really long time ago, so like 13, 14 years ago. Uh, and the internet, you know, and creator economy is not where it was, you know, where it is today. Like I was one of the first people who was like a quote unquote influencer for brands, like before it was influencing was a thing. Um, so I remember I would have my brother-in-law bring over this like big old video camera and he would record me answering entrepreneurs questions. And then we use the cables to like download the video and find some way to slice it and upload it to like a web my website <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's literally original how, that's yeah. how i started and you know leverage that into radio and leverage leverage radio into local television and lo leverage local television into national television and i was actually doing that kind of stuff before i even got on social media I had a woman who was a good dear friend, um, OG on Twitter, who has uh, recently passed in the last couple of years, named Liz Strauss, who brought me onto Twitter, kicking and screaming to the extent of, uh, that she actually ran my account for the first couple months. Like I wasn't even on it, like anything. If you go back to the beginning, like none of that is mine. Um, 
And, you know, then eventually I figured it out and uh, Lord help everybody else. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, that's kind of how all of this madness started. And, you know, in the beginning, I just I wanted to help small businesses. I wanted to, as I said, I really wanted to be a game show host. Like I never like really thought I would get into areas like news and political Mm -hmm. commentary and all of these things. Um, that just sort of happen along the way when you try something new and you go down and you make your plans and then different doors open and you're like, well, okay, I'll just walk through that one and see what it's like. So typical entrepreneur path, right? Yeah, nothing's planned and everything happens and you just roll with it as it goes. And (laughs) I love it. So now you know. So now you've you know you've built a, a great name for yourself. Um, still championing for small businesses. Obviously, that's what that's what your your core uh, message is, and you've built a, an incredible following around that message. I think it's very important. And I think that one thing that is actually interesting is, you know, you you have a social platform, and you get invited to speak on various business topics. But um, you mentioned that this particular topic has not really been covered that much. So this is not something that you're getting as much exposure on as some, I'm sure, you know, you have the, you have the relationships, you have the network. So let's, you know, I guess this is, this is the, this is where you're at in your career now. I think that that really sums up quickly. I don't mean to gloss over a lot of the stuff you've done, but I think that there's a lot of really important stuff that we could talk about just with the book um, and what it's discussing. So let's walk through the premise of the book. Let's just at, at a high level. And then we can talk about maybe why it's not getting coverage, why it could be, uh, why it's not getting the reach that I think it's it's an important topic. So let's yeah. dive into it. So I think the first thing I just want to say out front is this is a nonpartisan issue. Um, we're yeah. going to talk government and we're going to talk political because it's impossible not to. But mm-hmm. this is a systemic issue. This is not oh, if we just had this person or this party in place, it, it, it all fixes it. So I just want to put it out there because I think sometimes it taints people's reaction to think, oh, well, this is going to be you know a political lecture, and it's not, but it's a political reality. So yeah. the reality of what happened um, in the last 15 months which, you know, I lay out the argument that actually the seeds of this have been planted for a very long time, is that the government decided that it was going to deem some businesses essential and some non-essential. And it was going to decide who gets to thrive and who has to fight to survive. And they did this based not on data and not on science, but based on political clout and connections. And via these actions and also not appropriately compensating the small businesses for taking over their property rights and subjugating their property rights for the public good, it's enabled the most historic wealth transfer we've ever seen from Main Street to Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of the overarching theme of the book as well as this kind of ongoing battle between the decentralization that, you know, not only small business, but, you know, gig workers, creator economy, uh, crypto, all those things stand for versus centralized power. And that's, you know, the messaging. And unfortunately, this historic wealth transfer and this unequal treatment of small business is just getting glossed over um, you know, via the macro, oh, things are getting back to normal. Oh, the yeah. stock market's doing great. Well, again, let's peel back the onion and, and look at the story here. So so a couple points, because people are going to listen to this. They're going to say, okay, so where is, you know, I, I think that 
essential makes sense to me. Like we need people that are up and running. So how do we, how do we, how do we quantify that some businesses were left open and some weren't, and there wasn't a science or a reason behind it. And I'm actually, so I want to point out one more fact. I'm actually Canadian and Toronto is still shut down more or less just until recently. So I see it and I see all these, you know, you see the stories and not everybody knows somebody who owns a business, but you see the stories like, you know, a restaurant that's been open for 50 years, 60 years, closed down, closed down, closed down. And it's horrible. But the, the logic at the beginning, the premise was, well, these, uh, you know, these are spots where the, the virus can spread and we need to be careful about this. So walk me through, walk me through that. Yeah. So, you know, these are spots where, so the virus magically can't spread in the Amazon warehouse. It magically can't spread in Walmart. It magically cannot spread in Petmart where you can take your dog to get your dog's uh, hair and nails groomed, for lack of a better term. Uh, But you can't get your own hair and nails groomed. You can go to the weed dispensary, which, by the way, was not even legal a few years ago in many states, but now is deemed essential. You could go out and get liquor, but, you know, some other small business dry cleaner, whatever it is in your neighborhood, isn't essential. So those were kind of the delineations that were drawn up front. And again, if they had compensated those businesses for saying, we're, we're going to take some of you, we need to do something, we don't know what we're doing, but we're just picking you, and here's money so that you can you know have continuing operations, but you get to stay home, then there's, you know, then it's a different, completely different discussion, but that's not what happened. So that's what happened up front. But then if you keep going down the line, and again, you know, obviously I'm taking the U.S. take on this, and I'm sure you have your own examples in Canada, but you had situations where, okay, if you had a bar in New York, you could reopen, but you had to serve food. So then they would serve chips, and then they would say, no, you need to serve chips and dip. So the dip was the scientific difference between being open and shuttered. Then you had on the other coast um, in L.A., and I I go through this story in the book, um, Pineapple Hill Saloon and Grill, that spent more than $80,000 reportedly to fix up their outside seating so that they could comply with outdoor seating requirements so they could keep their business and they, you know, were community staple. And then they said, well, no, we're going to shut down outdoor seating, too, which we Mm -hmm. know the data and science didn't support that. But at the same time, they gave a permit to a movie production to be able to shoot a movie. I saw this story. Yeah, they opened up a catering tent to provide food service to the cast and crew in the same parking lot, like 100 feet away from the Pineapple Hill Saloon and Girls outdoor seating. So how is that not okay, but 100 feet away, the same activity is okay? Like, you you can just see these, yeah. these examples time and time again, and it's very clear that this is a cloud and connection thing and, and not a science thing. And in that particular case, um, Gavin Newsom, who is the governor of California, was found having dinner and breaking his own COVID protocols at the French Laundry, which is this hoity-toity place in California, with a lobbyist from the movie industry. So, you know, we have all of these very concrete examples. It was completely done on on Clout Connections. And again, if there had been compensation so that we truly were all in this together, it would be a very different story. But we were not all in it together. And that's the big problem here. What 
so what always confuses me is why would anybody benefit from not understanding this, seeing this and being like, this is a problem. It's like we, we can't lose because you said biggest wealth transfer. We can't lose all of these mom and pop brick and mortar family run businesses because that would be the logical thing to say. Right. You don't want all these. You don't all, you don't want all these people being an extra burden on the system because they can't they can't pay bills because the restaurants shut down. So why would why would this not be rectified? <laughs> I mean, that's you know the multi-trillion dollar question. Yeah, here. and that doesn't make any sense to me. They I could don't get have it. Do they could have done that very easily um, here in the United States. You know, we spent like more than six trillion dollars addressing COVID. They could have bought themselves two two and a half to three months and spent a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars. And if they wanted to address the small businesses and find um, risk mitigation strategies mm -hmm. instead. So they could have done that. And again, if you wanted to double that, it still would have been a fraction of what they actually spent. Um, but unfortunately, the media is, you know, running cover for politicians. Nobody's digging in to this. And no matter how many times we hear small business is so important, it's the backbone of the economy. We have to preserve, you know, wealth creation opportunities to people. Mm. When it's time to walk the talk, you don't have that. And unfortunately, and I, I don't know how it is in Canada, but things are so politicized here in the U.S. is that you can't even have a nuanced conversation without everybody retreating to, oh, well, let me see what my party talking points are. And like, just like going, okay, let's put that all aside. Like, let's just, you know, as common sense human beings, yeah. take a look at this. And, and we're not even saying like, you can't lock down or you have to have complete freedom. We're just talking about winners and losers and different treatment of different entities. And that is blatant. And it's why it's so important for people to educate themselves and to get all the information and facts behind this. And you mentioned uh, largest wealth transfer. Um, yeah. So what do you have numbers? Do you do you do you know what the numbers are like? Because I'm of curious. Of course I do. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lonely nerd, Scott. Of course I, know you I do. do. So yeah. So basically, there you have to understand that there are two levels that this happened on. So there is the kind of the fiscal policy level. We've we've closed down your business. You go. You have a customer who's looking to spend a dollar. They can't spend it at you know the local small business. And they spent that at Amazon, they spent that at Walmart, they spent it at Target. And I have you know actual numbers in the book, but you know, these companies, they had record quarters. We know that Amazon had their first $100 billion revenue quarter in the fourth quarter of 2020. They had a second one in the first quarter of 2021. Um, you know, at the same time, you had the monetary policy issues. And here in the United States, um, obviously the Federal Reserve, the most powerful central bank in the entire world, did a couple of things. They went back to um, almost zero interest rates. And in conjunction with that, and, and to in part to affect that, they print, quote unquote, printed, because it's really a digital entry um, mm -hmm. you know, on their books, but they created money uh, and put that you know into the system, which ended up inflating the market and disrupting risk and what we saw from that side and as well as the the you know the revenue expansion is that we had seven technology companies that gained 3.4 trillion dollars wow. in value in 2020 
as well as it being a record year for initial public offerings, as well as a record um, values raised by SPACs, which are special purpose mm -hmm. acquisition companies. And at the same time, by June of last year, we had recorded 400,000 small businesses that had been permanently shuttered and millions more that were struggling to survive. And I've seen lots of numbers um, on the outflow here. I've seen something up to 40% of all small businesses permanently shuttered. Those numbers aren't correct. That's probably of um, employer-based small businesses. But even mm -hmm. so, if it's 2 million, I mean, that's insane. There's only 10 to 15,000 big businesses in this country in the United States. So if you're talking about even 400,000, that's 40 times the number of big businesses that were shuttered permanently by these policies. And then obviously the, the trillions of dollars of, of, of wealth that was transferred from Main Street to Wall Street is just staggering. But this stuff is opaque. It's hard to understand. Most people don't know what the Federal Reserve is, which is why I have a whole chapter on it in the book so people can really understand what's happening in terms of tilting the playing field because you know i'm the biggest free market capitalist that's out there and and i don't you know I, I think that inequalities are okay if they come about in the market and you have different inputs and different outputs but are completely not okay when you have the government tilting the playing field um, in the direction of, of a handful of the players. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. HubSpot's CRM is the easiest tool you can ever find to align your team. There are two features that you need in a CRM that optimize every activity your team does. It's the ability to communicate, meaning chat, email, etc., messaging, as well as a unified system of record. Your company is going to use a CRM to manage conversations with prospects and customers throughout all stages stages of the buyer journey. And as your company grows, these conversations get a little bit more difficult. Information may get lost, communication may be disjointed, and HubSpot solves all that. Using HubSpot as your CRM makes sure that all of your communication and your records are unified across your entire organization, meaning that from when you first have that initial touch point with the customer and they enter your funnel, all the way through to when they actually sign that contract and after with customer success, every piece of information, every bit of communication is is aligned and congruent across your company. You can install live chat on your website and allow sales or support to talk to prospects directly. You can send marketing emails on behalf of a sales rep to complement their outbound campaign. You can allow prospects to book meetings directly from marketing emails right into a sales rep's calendar. And all the interaction, all the communication is seamlessly documented into the, your HubSpot CRM so that if somebody else has to look into an account or to help out, they know exactly where the last person left off. Best of all, with HubSpot's various price points and flexible pricing, any company at any stage can take advantage of the various features that HubSpot has to offer, starting with free and allowing for more scalability and complexity as your organization grows. Learn how to scale your company without scaling complexity at HubSpot.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Now, the, there's so, there are so many directions that it, this, is, <laughs> this is so great. There's so many things that I want to pull out of this, but I guess I think that it's also notable to, to speak on your experience about getting... Okay, let me let me think about this. First, I want to understand why you decided to write this book. Why is this important to you? Um, because this is obviously you're putting yourself out there in a big way. And secondly, speak about the reception of the book. And then I want to speak yeah. about some lessons learned because I don't want to move off that yet because I think this is very interesting as well. So I was actually approached to write a book, not necessarily this book, but a book 
about the economic consequences of you know what happened last year. Very early on, um, Harper Collins identified that this was going to be historic, mm-hmm. and they wanted somebody who had an actual background in finance and economics to be able to give a, a real take that wasn't just you know a bunch of partisan talking points and pushing an agenda. So <laughs> I, like, like an idiot, agreed and was like, oh, that sounds like a fun project to do while I'm on lockdown. Um, and so I didn't really realize that this was going to be this Herculean task because stuff is unfolding real time and decisions are being made. And so I just started, you know, chronicling what I was seeing and used it just a huge variety of sources and I knew small business was going to be a big piece of it, um, partially because of my background mm-hmm. and because I identified in March of 2020, hey, these are the first guys getting shut down. This is going to be a problem and had kind of put out an op-ed about this is the way that you could avoid having this economic disaster. So I knew that was going to be a piece of it. But, you know, I I actually wrote like three and a half different books, to be perfectly honest, during this pandemic. And this last one was like 160,000 words. And my editor is like, no, we're not doing that. So we, we called it back uh, to the you know, just under 90,000 that it is today. And so it was just as we were kind of going through what happened and it was such a wild ride because we had this historic fall off of the the GDP, but then you had this Fed intervention, and then you ended up with, as I said, this crazy wealth transfer. So like where where the, the story started was very different than how it ended, but the clear thing that just kept happening the whole time and the untold, underreported story was what was happening to the little guys, whether that be small businesses or individual mm-hmm. investors, retirees, you know, and, and I felt like um, you know, this this championing of the small person was was important. And, you know, so that ended up being the story. And, you know, it's like the most underreported story that's out there. So, you know, we're, you know, my, my publisher's super excited. They're like, you know, everybody's going to be all over this because everybody's seen what happened. Yeah. And there's such a differential. And the craziest thing is like I'm walking in the path of the small business owner because like decentralized media, the creator economy, folks like you, Scott, uh, folks who are not at big networks but have kind of their own things are all over this. I have a few champions, Charles Payne at Fox Business. We'll give Charles a shout out. He's always a champion <laughs> for the little guy. But I have done, and again, this is like hard, hard for people to understand, but like I'm somebody who's in the media like I'm on TV multiple times a day, like I'm a known quantity. So this is like, it, it would serve to to think that like this would be a no brainer. But yeah. I have done at this point in time and I'm scheduled for zero primetime television hits and wow. zero morning show hits. None, zero, zero. Even, so, even with somebody who wants to argue with you about this, like nothing. No, yes. Like nothing. E- even with people who like, you know, like, oh, we support the little guys or whatever. Even though, yeah, like, on either side. None. And yeah. I've had, you know, op-eds that have been rejected, um, you know, that we've tried to put out in, in, in media that are adapted from the book. Uh, Fox Business did run one of them. And I think the New York Post is going to be running one. But again, like in terms of 
you've got you're the first person to market with this huge underreported story that affects half the economy and like like crickets like my my publishers like I I can't believe this and it's just proving the thesis that everybody talks a big game at the end of the day nobody actually cares it's you know the government does it the media does it and unfortunately as i said this is not a niche this is half the US economy globally yeah. small business is 99.9% of all business entities around the globe so this is a story and i've had people you know not only from canada but from nigeria and from india and other yeah. places saying the same thing happened here course, the same everywhere. thing happened right yeah. it's, it's the same so yeah. even though it's and you would think the us would be like the one place where they're like oh well we're going to do right by you know free market capitalism but it's completely moved um in the opposite direction so even though the story is told from the us lens it is very relevant and has had a lot of interest um you know broadly and i will say the other weird thing is is that the re the people who've read the book love the book like that the feedback across the political aisle um and and it's early from early readers and there are a bunch a bunch of people who like rip through it this week yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um has been great you know it's already got a bunch of reviews up it's been phenomenal so it's not like oh well you know it just wasn't a very good book and people don't want to talk about it because there are lots of very bad books that we see on the media all the time so this is something that people think supposedly think is important um people agree that it, it's well written it's important and yeah like nobody, nobody wants to um, talk about it i i still it still it still blows my mind that on you know it's too bad that it, it's turned into a partisan issue because it's not it's it's a it's a human issue at the end of the day when you really when you really break it down the people that are, are losing businesses and are trying to reinvent themselves and you know i love what you said at the beginning about the gig economy is great and that's fine but not everybody who's owned a restaurant for 40 years is comfortable just joining the gig economy or right. or selling a service on fiverr or going to deliver for uber like it's not easy for some people and this is the people that are really hurting not the people that were easily transitioning into another job sure. or something like that yeah um, i mean and that's and that's the point yeah. of small businesses it's so broad um yeah. and it encompasses so many different things and it's not all only about money either you know it's about freedom and flexibility and passion and it's yeah. people's identities i mean it's so important um, outside of the economic realm in terms of just the concept of freedom and economic freedom you know that's what small business stands for and so you know that makes it you know kind of doubly a heartbreak here yeah it's it's very strange to me that nobody is really is really picking this up um how do we how do we help small businesses what's the what's the what's the action plan to to help these people <laughs> that haven't you know haven't had a lot of support well so the most important thing that we can you know each and every one of us can do is vote with our our dollars is that it's very easy and we've all become very lazy and accustomed to you know just doing whatever is the the fastest or something that you know you have auto programmed yeah. in your phone but remember that you know that has consequences and so you know if you're sitting around and you're asking Alexa Alexa why does Jeff Bezos have so much money um <laughs> you know there there's a little cognitive dissonance there and so you you have to be thinking about who is it that I want to be supporting you know I only have so much money to to put out there mm -hmm. you know be thoughtful about about your capitalism and about your spending 
I think the other thing, you know, and, and particularly here in the U.S., we need to rein in the fe the Federal Reserve, um, you know, the, the impact of this monetary policy in terms of driving this this transfer of wealth and, and creating this unequal playing field has just gotten to absurd proportions. And because it's, as I said, it's opaque and people don't understand it, it's just not getting the lens. Um, and we, we need more deregulation um, and things that are removing these anti-competitive barriers that make it harder for small businesses to operate. You know, here in the U.S., obviously, we were the center of the Great Recession financial crisis, which ended up impacting the world economy. Um, some financial institutions took on too much risk, and we all paid the price for that. And coming out of that, there's this regulation called Dodd-Frank that was supposed to rein in the big banks. But what did it do? It basically completely killed off the start of small and community banks. It threw a bunch of them, um, you know, under and that they, they couldn't uh, they couldn't exist anymore. And the outgrowth of that, because small institutions are the ones that lend to small businesses, meant that small business lending went off a cliff. At the same time, the big banks had less competition. And so <laughs> they had also this all this access to capital from the Fed intervention in the markets. And so big business lending increased. So all, all of this stuff that was meant to rein in the big banks ended up giving them free reign and the small guys got screwed uh, once again. So we have to be very careful about trying to get more involvement <laughs> into the market. We, yeah. we need to let the small businesses operate in a more free, decentralized way. But so one thing you said that was it was really important is you can vote with your dollars. That makes sense. Everybody can action that tomorrow. Even you're, yep. you're, you're doing that. So I don't even, yes. you know, you didn't even mention that. You're launching your book and selling it through a small business versus the Amazon route, right? That's yeah. So, that, so it's, I mean, it's available everywhere. Yeah. It's a big publisher. But I personally have been yeah. telling people, particularly in the U.S., to go to bookshop.org. Bookshop.org fulfills through local small business booksellers. And we've sent so much traffic to them that within like two or three days, they were already back ordered on the nice. book, <laughs> which is a good. great thing. So you can still yeah. back order it there now. Um, but there are all kinds of retailers that are listed with the publisher. And you can certainly walk over to your small business bookseller as well. Yeah, of course. But you know, I didn't want to be the person who is like, oh, let's support small businesses and go buy my book on Amazon. <laughs> so you know, we're trying, trying to walk the talk. And again, I'm a capitalist. So if, if you find the convenience in that and you've been thoughtful about it and that's still the best option for you, then God bless. You know, I'm not going to stop yeah. you from buying the book. But you know, give, give it a second thought. Give it at least a second thought. Um so that that was my point was that you can vote with your dollars there but in terms of understanding the Federal Reserve understanding how to actually push move the needle on on holding them accountable maybe you know you said the average American has to be better educated so do you have ideas about is it is it just voting for the right representative is it government like what is the what is the action plan for the average American to move that needle so buy the book and read chapter five, which has been consistently <laughs> chapter five and 12, the Federal Reserve of China, everybody's two favorite chapters, including mine in the book. Um, so you need to learn what, what it is that you're talking about. And then we need to be contacting our representatives and telling them that they need to rein it in and that they need to cull the purview and you know what it is that the Federal Reserve can do. The fact that they have 
eight trillion dollars on their balance sheet that they have created mm -hmm. from nowhere through a digital entry um the fact that they have suppressed interest rates below market rates for so long and disrupted risk in the market um that isn't okay and they're not following their mandate from congress anymore either so i think the more people that complain because i mean i guarantee you other than like a couple libertarians who followed ron paul and Rand paul like nobody's calling their representatives being like hey have you looked into the federal reserve lately um so yeah i mean that's i mean it's, that's like a great place to start and it's one that i think that as more people figure out what's going on again mm -hmm. bipartisan like you know yeah. nonpartisan, like everyone should say like yeah that's does seem like a good thing and you know i feel like sometimes this whole like discussion of eat the rich or eat the wealthy is a bastardization of not understanding that there's nothing wrong with being wealthy as long as you're not getting these special favors or you're not having you know the ability to take somebody who's a retiree's money that they put in the bank and they're getting like zero percent interest on and then you're borrowing on that and like buying up the house to compete with them um you know i think if that's not okay so like understanding yeah. the dynamics there i think will make discussions more nuanced and then people better able to articulate what it is they think should be done and just to tie tie that to something that maybe people have heard in the news um is the CARES Act uh, that was part that was something that was initiated by the Reserve, the Fed, or is that something different? No, CARES, the CARES Act was um, via Congress, okay. and um, <laughs> that was sort of the the it was the third, but like the big relief act that came out at the end of March, and that's what had the first tranche of PPP, okay. which was the Payroll Protection Program, um, which has its own business. issues. Which has so many issues, and I again, I kind of detail this whole thing yeah. in the book, but the, that whole package was trillions of dollars that mostly went to cronies and like a couple hundred billion that in that particular tranche that went to small businesses that got eaten up in 13 to 14 days by quote unquote big small businesses that had access to capital, including like celebrities that were being named to the Forbes billionaire list and all kinds of stupid stuff. Yeah, just more accountability, more transparency, yeah. more more education. Like this is what this is what, and it's so sad that it's just pigeonholed into a partisan issue because it's so not. Like no. it's so it's so not. Um, <laughs> so is that the like, general? I would reception? say like every yeah. everyone yeah. everyone's part of the Green Party. Like we all want the yeah. opportunity to yeah. to take control of our wealth. Yeah, it's been great. You know, um, it's it's funny because I always say like here in the U.S., I feel like progressives, libertarians, and conservatives have all identified some of the same problems. They just differ on the solutions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just not, you know, kind of looking at the scope of what's out there or kind of bringing nuance to the table. But the reception from people who, you know, may not agree politically on this particular subject is pretty universal. Um, so the, the reception has been great so far from readers <laughs> that well, have found good. out of it yeah. through the decentralized yeah. media and the people and the influencers who've been um been out there spreading the word and so yeah Very that's good. what we're going to continue to do good okay so um we, we went through a whole bunch of stuff and of course yes i want people to actually go read the books so we're not gonna we're not gonna make you you know do a read through of every every single chapter but um <laughs> I, I like to wrap this up um with some like career and life questions some experience that you've had yeah. in your career just for people that are, are younger in their career but before we pivot was there anything else that you want to bring up in relation to the book or or some of the things that we've just spoke about that we didn't go into 
Yeah, so I just want to make a plug why this book's so important. And yeah. uh, hopefully you'll indulge my silly personality by saying this and not being like, she, I can't believe she said this. I, I'm saying this like tongue in cheek. But like, I got a, an advance for this book. Like, I'm getting paid whether or not any of you buy this book. Like, this is not, <laughs> this makes zero financial difference in my life, I promise you. So like, you could if you buy it or if you don't buy it, like, it doesn't help me one way or another. Like, I don't, I don't care. I'm cashing my checks from that standpoint. But what I do really care about is small business advocacy and advocacy for economic mm. freedom and wealth creation and making sure we don't end up with economies where there's like 10 companies that everybody's only working for them and only can purchase from them. And we've taken away, you know, this great opportunity from everybody. So if you care about that, that's why you need to buy the book and that's why you need to convince other people to buy the book because if this book doesn't do well and people aren't talking about these things then the media is going to continue to ignore this and mm -hmm. publishers are going to continue to ignore this and politicians are going to continue to ignore this but if people start seeing this as a movement and taking this information and talking about it and spreading it and it does well and, and when they can see like the little guy does matter, like that's going to affect change. So like, I hope I plea with you to buy the book for that reason, not because it's like going to support me or change my life one iota. Good. I love that. That's very good. Okay. Let's do, let's do some rapid fire career questions yes. <laughs> um, as, as, as lengthy or as short as you'd like. Um, biggest, <laughs> biggest challenge in your career. How did you overcome it? I mean, I feel like I'm the biggest challenge <laughs> of my career because I'm so hard on myself. And so, like, yeah. anything I do that, like, doesn't have this, like, immediate, like, oh, my God, like, you killed it in the immediacy. Like, I, I like, I, I'm just that person. So I'm so hard. So I, I've taken a success mantra um, which I used to have pinned at the top of my Twitter. And after I stopped promoting my book <laughs> at the end of the summer, we'll go back to the pin on my Twitter, which is basically success comes when you pursue something with the vigor to get it done immediately, but having the patience when it takes much longer. And that. I put it up there, not really for all of you, but as a reminder for myself, because, you know, it is like, like when stuff doesn't go in that linear line or, you know, it's like one step forward and two step back. Like I, I can just be so hard on myself um, that, you know, that stands as a, a nice reminder for me. And then anyone else who takes something away from that as well, I feel like that's gravy. That's a great, I love that. That's a great quote. Is that, is that you that wrote that or is that a quote? Yeah, that's a, that's a Carol Roth original. That's good. I love I that. I should that's, NFT it. Yeah, you should NFT it. That's a good one. That's that's really good. I like that. I've never, I was like, I, I don't think I've ever seen that one before. Like, who the hell said that? That's Carol Roth to good. herself. Good, good. Um, okay. One lesson you would tell your younger self. Ah, take more risk early on. That's an yeah. easy one. I mean, it takes, it takes just as long and it's just as hard to build something big as it is to build something small. And when you don't have a lot to lose, it's the time to experiment. So like if you are early on in your career, like just go big, like whatever you're doing, just like mm -hmm. three exit, five exit. Nice. Ask yourself if like, is this big enough? I love that. Um, 
uh, one person that had an incredible impact on your life. Who was it? What did they teach you? Uh, my dad. My dad was my best friend. Rest, rest in peace, Bernie. Um, you know, he, <laughs> like, as I said, when I started, like, he was not formally educated, but he had so much common sense. And he just had such great values about work ethic and being a person of your word and, um, you know, good financial sense, not buying things you can't afford and, and not using debt unless it's a, you know, an investment tool and being loyal um, that, you know, that's really made me who I am. And I think also particularly as, as a woman, um, he never treated me like a woman. Like there was never the like girls do this conversation or as a, like a woman, you should be doing this or you should be focused in this thing. So like, I didn't even know that I was female until like somebody <laughs> brought that up. Like by the time I got to the media, because you know, I went to Wharton, which was, you know, especially at that time, heavily male dominated. I went into finance, you know, which is heavily male dominated. You know, then I, I did you know, radio and TV, also very heavily male dominated. And it wasn't like until that piece when like somebody's like, oh, and a woman. And I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah, I guess yeah. I guess I am. But yeah. I never had I was never given those like limiters, like the limiting beliefs, like, oh, you're Good. part of this group and you can only do this and like I was just never taught like that and I attribute that entirely to my father just treating me as an individual which is why I feel like I am an individualist today and and why I kind of walked through life in that direction I think that was so incredibly uh, important in terms of my success I love that um uh okay something you'd recommend people go check out besides your own it could be a book podcast audible Oh, there's so many good things. Um, one of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple of years that like nobody knows about, which is a real story, is called Billion Dollar Whale. Scott, have you heard of Billion Dollar Whale? I have not heard of that. Okay, so this I is have like not the, heard of this that. is this is another one that's a head scratcher, and also like in, I'm in the financial media, so this is the reporting by these former Wall Street Journal reporters who are just brilliant on the biggest scam that's ever been perpetrated in history, which was on uh, basically the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Malaysia, which you may have heard of oh, called I, 1MDB. I, 1MDB. Like everyone's heard yeah. like, yeah, yeah. everyone's like, oh yeah, I've heard a little bit about it. And it's got Goldman Sachs is involved, politicians are involved, a bunch of Hollywood people like Leonardo DiCaprio and Paris Hilton are all weaved in this like crazy tangled web. And they took this thing and they broke down how the scam like unfolded with this guy, Joe Lowe. It is the most insane thing. Like every time I would read a chapter, I go, what? And then like read the next one. And then I was like, I said to my husband, like, you got to read this and we'll have book club afterwards. And I, the same thing, he's like reading a chapter. He's going, what? You know, like every single one billion dollar whale. Like if you're interested in stuff like this. It's phenomenal. And and like you said, like everyone's like, oh, like I kind of think I've heard something about 1MDB, but I don't really know yeah. what it is. And the, I mean, it's wild. So That's I would highly recommend Billion Dollar Whale, which I heard they're making a movie and a podcast and all this other stuff up too. So there's probably ways to get deeper into it. Um, but after you read The War on Small Business, read Billion Dollar Whale. You could probably buy them as a, as a package together. It's a, it'll blow your mind. 
It'll blow your mind. Great. Great. And then um, last question, uh, what does success mean to you? Even though you already touched on this, but what does success mean to you? So I feel like success is ever changing because like at any point in time, you know, I'll have goals for success in a certain project. I have goals for success in my relationships. Um, you know, those are those are fairly consistent. You know, I want to I want to be a good person yeah. and a good partner and, and whatnot. Um, but like, I, I, don't, I just feel like, especially probably because I, I'm the kind of person who does a lot of things and I have a lot of different projects, like there is no there's like success is like a, oh, did this thing end up like in the way that it should by some measurable, measurable metric? Why or why not? And then we go to the next thing. So I don't know that success is this like overarching glow for me versus like a, a measure of objectives that I've set out, you know, for each thing that I tackle. I love that. Very good. You're, you're, you're fire with these quotes. These are very good. You should, uh, <laughs> these are a whole bunch after, of printable after tweets. After I yeah. do my game show, yeah. I'll, be, I'll, write, I'll write a book of pithy quotes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, where do people go connect with you? Social website, uh, Anything you want to drop? Yes. Um, so skywriting is obviously the, the best option. But if that is not within your budget, um, Twitter is usually where people find me. I'm at okay. Carol J.S. Roth on Twitter because at Carol Roth was already taken when I got on this, you know, 2010 or whatever it was. <laughs> and she never uses it, which is really annoying. I tried to buy it from her early on. But at this point, I'm like all over the web at Carol J.S. Roth. So it just is what it is. Um, and that's really like if you really want to connect with me and as you've probably figured out from this, have a slightly warped sense of humor. So like it's not for everyone, but, you know, if, if you like that kind of stuff, um, that's where you should go. And then I'm also accessible. Like if you have a question, there's a contact form at my very old and outdated website. Yes, I know, but it doesn't generate any revenue really for me. So I don't care. Carolroth.com. Um, and I'm always happy to try to be helpful, you know, within reason <laughs> for people. So. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. 
Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, 
drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 